Well, this evening, we will be in Daniel. We'll start in chapter 11, verse 36, and continue through chapter 12, verse 4. Daniel chapter 11, beginning with verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with god and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price." At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, and he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. This is the word of the Lord. Well, at the end of January 2020, uh, I sent an encouraging text message to a friend. Uh, I didn't write it. I ran across it, but it seemed apt. Uh, She and I had each been through some difficult things and uh, nothing catastrophic, just we'd had some tough things happen already so early in 2020. And and I, I wrote to her this, January was a tough year, but we made it. Now, if only, of course, we had any idea what was coming down the pike. But I think we sometimes wonder, is this the big one? Is, you can insert any crisis that you want, is 
this the moment that the church and all of God's people have finally been waiting for? Is this the time in history that makes a month seem not even like a year, but a decade or an eternity? Christians have been asking this problem practically since Jesus ascended into heaven. We have Augustine writing that, that Christians had considered Nero the Antichrist. And some Christians even believed that Nero would rise again as the Antichrist. The original version of the Westminster Confession of Faith calls the Pope the Antichrist. And today, if you squint hard enough, you can practically find the Antichrist in every world news report. And then on top of these, these historical figures, these people, there are the crises that occur in the church which are exploited by the enemy, even including the division in the church today over the responsible way to address the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, whatever crisis comes for the people of God, you have to ask, how will you endure? And what we find as Daniel's final vision draws to its conclusion, we find that it takes wisdom and courage from God to endure. Now you can be sure the church will face this dramatic crisis at the end. And the church will be face down on the mat. The referee will be counting up to the knockout. And the vision that Daniel has has been building up to this reality. From verses 21 through 35, Daniel has heard in advance about the career of Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, who terrorized the saints. Uh, in, in the second century BC. But yet, suddenly in verse 36, the, the wickedness of this king of the north reaches a new register. But here we're talking about the Antichrist. Now, it's true that the text doesn't mark this transition in so many words. And yet, what we do know is that from verse 36, the historical details don't really fit Antiochus properly anymore. And, and so what's happening, this is something that happens in other prophetic visions. It's called uh, prophetic foreshortening. So when, as the prophet sees it in the vision, some future events all appear together. But as the time comes for their, their fulfillment, we see that they're actually distinct events. Now, we see this actually uh, in another place, too. For example, in Isaiah 61, where it promises that the servant of God comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of his vengeance. But when Jesus reads this passage in Luke 4, he says this prophecy is fulfilled. Even though at his first coming, he did not come to bring judgment to the world. That happens at his second coming. And so Isaiah saw the two comings of Christ in one vision, in one report. So we, again, we call that prophetic foreshortening, or sometimes it's called telescoping. And so similarly, Daniel is seeing what John wrote about in 1 John chapter 2. For John wrote, As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So the juxtaposition of these characters in history shows us that 
there is one capital A Antichrist coming. But along the way, there will be many little a Antichrists. People like Antiochus Epiphanes and others who harass and persecute God's people. And I don't know whether I or you or, or anybody else will face the little Antichrists or the big one in our lifetimes. But I know that no matter which, which kind you face, you need wisdom and courage to persevere. Which is exactly the purpose of this vision, as the angel tells Daniel back in chapter 10. The vision is given to Daniel so that he would be wise and not afraid. And at the, in, verse, in chapter 12, verse 4, it is sealed up so that God's people may know it and read it. And so God wants you to have that same wisdom and courage. And so in this vision, one of the ways that God does this is that He wants to show you the enemy and the Savior. He wants you to know your enemy and to know your Savior. And so tonight we're going to consider in verses 36 through 39 the Antichrist's wickedness. In verses 40 through 43, Antichrist's violence. And then from verse 44 to chapter 12, verse 3, uh, uh, the, the Savior's uh, deliverance. And then finally, in verse 4 of chapter 12, an encouraging little coda to this vision. So the Antichrist's wickedness, his violence, and the Savior's deliverance. And so first we look at Antichrist's wickedness, for there will never be anybody like him in wickedness. There are two aspects of his wickedness to consider, his impiety and his false piety. And so first we see his impiety, for it's written in verse 36 that Antichrist shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. Even to the heathen, this would be a shocking thing to experience. In classical antiquity, uh, refusing to believe in any deities at all, in, in the state's deities particularly, you, you could be accused of atheism and put to death because you were undermining the state. This was the crime, one of the crimes at least, that, that, that led to them pronouncing the death penalty on Socrates. And so we see repeatedly through this account that the Antichrist pays no attention to the gods, even asserting himself to be superior to every god. And this would be an unthinkable act of wickedness and hubris even for the pagan who doesn't believe in the true god. But it culminates in the greatest arrogance, for it says he speaks astonishing things against the god of gods, for he will take special effort to dishonor the true God of heaven. He's going to go up to his own creator and spit in his face. It's astonishing to me that someone who, you know, who, who would be an instrument of the devil, who himself is such an expert theologian, and yet still stand against him, would, would, would desire to go toe-to-toe with God. And so it just goes to show you how depraved and wicked Antichrist is. But on top of that, there's this curious 
little extra note in verse 37. It says that he shall also pay no attention to the one beloved by women. Now, in the original Hebrew, you might translate this more literally, that he would pay, pay no more that he would pay no attention to the desire of women, which is a difficult phrase to translate. And um, there are two parallels in Scripture that shed some light on this. So we, we see a similar construction in 1 Samuel 9.20 in which the desires of Israel, sorry, the desire of Israel uh, refers to the treasures of Israel. So not something that Israel desires, but to this treasure that Israel possesses. We also have a similar uh, sentiment evoked, not the exact same words, but similar concept evoked when David, speaking of his friendship with Jonathan, compares his love, Jonathan's love favorably to the love of women. And so historically, uh, this passage has been translated as simply human love and affection. And so, in his rejection of the gods and the true God, and even of human love and care and kindness, we see that the Antichrist cultivates neither piety nor humanity. And so we have Antichrist in piety, his rejection of the true God, of every God, and even of love for humanity. But we also have to deal with his false piety. For it says in verse 38, he shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. Now, in the pantheon, I'm not aware of any patron deity of fortresses as such. And so what this is saying is that instead of honoring the gods, he will honor power itself. And specifically, he will give honor to his own power. Begins with this simple declaration in verse 36 that he shall do as he wills. It will be in his mind to accomplish all the indignation that he wants to accomplish. He'll do it. He'll be able to do it. And he will follow through. And yet, even in this false worship, he had, there are a couple of odd things about this. The worship of his own power. And first is the fact that it isn't really his. The power that he has isn't really his own. For he will prosper until the indignation is accomplished, but only by God's decree. His ability to do as he wills is still limited by God. Now for us, this is a double-edged sword in some ways, for God's decree means that there will be a fulfillment to his intention to harm the church. So this purpose uh, has been fixed by God, but only so far. For there will be a time when God says, it's enough. And at the resurrection, spoiler alert, uh, God will undo the harm that he has caused. But at that time, Antichrist will have no power anymore to do his will. He may be so self-deceived that he thinks that he can win against God, but he will lose. And the other odd thing to me about Antichrist's self-worship is that it will come at a cost. For it says, A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. So his honor that he gives toward this so-called God of fortresses will cost him dearly in worldly treasure. 
And we know that Antichrist is powerful, and yet in his lust for it, he'll pursue it even more. And he, it will cost him. And even for all the power that he has, he'll be seeking out uh, uh, flunkies to help him in his depraved quest. And to these flunkies, he'll offer rich rewards for those who come to his aid and even give them lands to rule over. <clears throat> and that's one of the ways that he can be so dangerous and so beguiling. For even, as we said, the pagans will know that what he's doing is wrong. But he will offer earthly riches and honor to those who do his bidding. Now this is, this is a vision. This is in the imagery of prophecy. And we don't need to suppose that he will necessarily, in the fulfillment, be recruiting an army armed with guns and tanks. I mean, it's possible, but we don't have to assume that's certainly the truth. For this is prophecy. The language is symbolic. And so it suits the enemy's purposes just fine to attack the church in all kinds of ways that are far more subtle than fighting and explosions. He's just as happy to work through conflict within the church, for example, through the downfall of, of, of Christian leaders who scandalize themselves, and so on. And the rewards and honor won't even always be monetary in nature, for respect in the world's eyes often just do as well. And so we, even in this time, see people and churches abandoning the gospel in order to win the respect of the world whoever it is whose respect they want to win. And so you see the need for wisdom and courage. It will, it will be tempting to follow the Antichrist because there's a lot that he can offer. There are rewards waiting for those who follow him. But we also have a Savior who faced Satan's temptations in the wilderness. For Satan offered him bread when he was hungry. Satan offered him power over the world when he was weak and admiration from the crowds when he was a nobody. But Jesus obeyed his heavenly Father. He fed on his Father's words. He worshipped his Father alone and refused to put the Father to the test. And so in Christ, we find a Savior who has been through temptation, these temptations and many more, and followed the Father perfectly on your behalf. You have a heavenly Father who provides for you more valuable to Him than the birds whom He feeds and the lilies that He clothes. And so you need none of the goods and privileges that the enemy may offer you because God is a good Father who gives you everything that you need. And so Satan may offer you much, but in the end he's only looking out for himself, worshiping himself and his own power. And he will act out his power by means of great violence, as we see in verses 40 through 43. A violence, again, it may be spiritual violence, maybe physical, maybe both, I think that's likely. But the violence will reach its climax at the very end. And so here in verse 40, we see that somebody who is typified by the king of the south has finally gotten wise to what Antichrist is up to. For the long-fought battle between the Ptolemies of the south and the Antichrist of the north has gone to its final round. The king of the south will take offense to Antichrist's activities. We don't know why. It doesn't say. Maybe the king is under a threat 
and wants to secure resources. Maybe he envies the power of Antichrist. Maybe he even has noble reasons to oppose Antichrist. We just don't know. But it doesn't matter. Because what matters is that he will fight in his own strength without God. And he will lose. Even the once strong king of the south, the greatest strength that the world has to throw at Antichrist will go down and be defeated. And not only defeated, but humiliated. For the king of the south, this king of Egypt, will have to give up his land, his treasuries of gold and silver, and all the precious things of Egypt. And he will even give up his friends and allies. For Libya and Cush were historically allies of Egypt during this time. And so Antichrist will plunder Egypt of all that he treasures with overwhelming force, with great violence, and will even, uh, will even win his friends away from him. But the king of the south was merely a target of opportunity. The king of the south was just a nuisance that had to be dealt with. But his real aim, as we read in verse 41, is that he is there to, he intends to come to the glorious land and to fight and to kill God's people. And this particular spot is the only place in, uh, in, in tonight's passage where, where we see that Antichrist will kill, where it specifically says that many will fall, tens of thousands will fall to Antichrist. Now the last time, in the last uh, sermon, we talked about Antiochus Epiphanes' violence against Jerusalem. He killed 40,000 of God's people. He defiled the sanctuary. He stopped temple sacrifice, sacrificed pigs on the altar, and erected a monument to Zeus. And yet this doesn't hold a candle to what Antichrist intends to do to God's people. Tens of thousands will fall. A, a death toll that seems to be without limit. The streets will run with blood. And he'll do it simply because they love God, for he will leave standing Edom, Moab, the most of the Ammonites, these historic enemies of God's people. For all it is to, to rescue them is that it's enough that they are opposed to God's people. The Antichrist will make convenient alliances with anybody with whom he shares a common enemy, God and his people. And so worshipful of his own power, Antiochus will act out his power with violence. It reminds me of this passage in 1984 where the protagonist, Winston Smith, he thinks that he's on, uh, in on a coup attempt, an attempt to overthrow uh, the all-powerful party. But it turns out he's lured into a trap by this guy, O'Brien. And O'Brien seeks even to take away the sense of the passage of time from Winston. And, and Winston says, no, there is a future. Time still passes. And O'Brien says to him, if you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. That's the kind of thing that Antichrist has in mind for God's people. So you have to be prepared. This is why God is foretelling this for His people, so that you may be prepared, so that you 
may see both the little and the big Antichrist for what they are. Paul writes in Ephesians 2 that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This this phrase, course of this world, is sometimes translated spirit of the age in some translations. This may be the covert activity of Satan, but it's nevertheless, it's real activity of Satan. And so we're surrounded. We face antichrists in one of these senses or another all the time. Look at what, how we can see this in the world. For we saw how Antichrist doesn't worship the known gods. And yet in the world around us, we see how this same dynamic works out on the level of the spirit of the age. This myth that humanity is always making progress just keeps getting better and better. And so in the process of this myth-making, the animating principles of the past, ideas as diverse as democracy, education, engineering prowess, the rule of law, whatever it may be, they get jettisoned in favor of the new and supposedly better ideas as humanity continues its onward march. And it's true that in some ways society gets better, and in some ways society gets worse. But no matter whether it's getting better or worse in one area or all areas, the problem of human sin can't can't be solved from within ourselves, no matter how much progress we make in how many areas. And consider, too, how some of these new ideals are forced upon you with or without the threat of violence. For just as Antichrist uses power and violence and bribery to bend people to his will, so does the world around us today. It's justifiable to be angry at the state of the world around us. But more than anger, we should take pity on the world around us. For the people you run into every day are in some ways self-deceived, have only themselves to blame. But yet, they're also jerked around by the spirit of this age. And they just don't know it because they're not bound to the God who never changes. So when you consider the power wielded by the powerful, or even the way things like social networks are actually designed and engineered to quite literally addict people, just the same way that drugs do, consider that the people around you reap what they sow, but also consider what Jesus said in Matthew 9, that he had compassion on the crowds because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So as you look to live in the world around you, be careful about what you dedicate yourself to. Now, by God's grace, there are good things in this world. And yet all things must be judged by God's standards and God's character. And we'll see that this is a character that he reveals most gloriously as he accomplishes the downfall of the Antichrist 
and the salvation of his people. And so as we move on from the Antichrist's wickedness and violence, we look now to the Savior's deliverance. First, as we see this deliverance, we'll see the downfall of the Antichrist. And second, the deliverance or the salvation of the saints. Now, after his conquest of Egypt, uh, Antichrist will turn his attention to a new threat. For he will get news from the east and north, and he will go out to destroy these new rebels that are arising. But it's strange, isn't it, that it says that the news will alarm him. For someone with so much power, it seems so strange to me that he would be alarmed, that he would be scared. So keep in mind that even the most terrible enemy of God and his people still has to keep his head on a swivel. For his power is not limitless, and he knows it. And he will set up for battle, pitching his palatial tents in the Holy Land. And then what? Well, the vision is actually light on details. It simply says that he comes to an end. with none to help him. No real information given about how or why. I think that this gives the sense that this Antichrist, he seemed like a raging inferno, but snuffed out with no more fanfare than a candle. And so he will fall. But if the Antichrist's downfall is anticlimactic, The saint's deliverance is glorious. So as we look at verse chapter 12, we read about the salvation of the saints to eternal life. And it says here in verse 1, at that time. Now, this is a reference to the entire period of Antichrist's activity. So we're not sort of seeing a serialized account where Michael's activity only begins after the downfall of Antichrist. No, Michael has been active during Antichrist's activity. And so Michael, the great angel who watches over God's people, will be at work defending them. Now we may have terrifying angelic opponents as God's people, but we also have a great angelic defender. The same angelic being who fights and defeats the dragon in Revelation 12. And yet one who has the humility and fear of God to simply say to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, as we read in Jude uh, Jude verse 9. And yet for all his strong defense, there will still be a time of trouble. And so his defense seems primarily oriented around giving perseverance to the saints, not preventing trouble from befalling them, but, but giving perseverance to the saints. And this is a time of trouble unlike anything that any nation has ever faced. Every suffering of God's people is just an hors d'oeuvre to this, the main course. But the deliverance is sure. All of God's elect, all those recorded in the book of life will be delivered. And how does your name get in that book? Well, you don't get your own name in the book. But if you are one of those for whom Christ died, your name is in the book of life. Christ's death and resurrection guarantee this deliverance. 
just as the saints will suffer and many or most will be destroyed in this life, Jesus also suffered and died. God doesn't plan for his saints to go through anything that he himself has not gone through. And through faith in him, you can know that you not only suffer with him, but you will endure with him and be raised from the dead with him. And you too will have everlasting life with him. As we read here in verse 2, that many of them who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some, meaning the faithful, to everlasting life. Endurance in Christ is the mark of the saint, as Jesus himself says in Revelation 3, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. The only alternative is one day to rise instead to shame and everlasting contempt. And if through faith you are raised to everlasting life, what a joyous life that will be. For we've talked about Antichrist's wickedness and violence, but everything he is is the opposite of everything Jesus is. And so in everlasting life, we will honor God faithfully and live the glorious life we long to live in him. And in place of violence visited upon us, God will visit and shower his great love on us. But in the meantime, we have much to endure. We have the opportunity to do so with wisdom. Now remember, in Scripture, wisdom uh, is not as, just, as we say, head knowledge. It's a moral category. It's understanding how to put a righteous life into practice. But this is a wisdom that God himself gives to his people as he gave it to Daniel. And as James writes, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And we have the chance to share that wisdom with others as it says here that, that, that those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness, those who share that wisdom, the way of righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. And this would be a natural outworking of the pity for the lost that we would do well to adopt. And while all who endure will arrive safely at everlasting life, there is special honor reserved for those who do so with great wisdom and who bring others along with them. And so we have here at the climax of Daniel's vision a picture of the Antichrist's wickedness and violence, but also a picture of the Savior's deliverance. And so in verse 4 we read that this vision of Daniel is recorded for the benefit of God's people until the end, for it is sealed up it is, until the time of the end. It is there. You know, sealing uh, in this case doesn't mean to make it a secret. I mean, it means to preserve it. For a seal was a symbol of preservation. A seal was used to ensure that a, do a document arrived safely at its intended destination. So the order to seal this up is in order to make sure that this, the record of this vision is preserved for God's people until the end. And so it is here for you. 
It is here to encourage you, to teach you, to know what to expect. And along with the rest of God's words, to teach you everything that you know, that you need to know, to be saved by Him, and to walk faithfully with Him. There will be those who don't listen to the words of the vision. Amos 8.12 echoes this saying, they shall, well, Daniel echoes Amos, excuse me. Uh, but Amos 8.12 says, they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Some people will run around in ignorance, thinking that they can find the ability to endure the wisdom of God in all kinds of places that they can't. But for those who hear the word of the Lord, including this vision, they will increase in knowledge. And so through the word of God, God prepares you to stand up to all kinds of dangers and evils in the life of faith. And so this word, this vision isn't given by God to scare you about what's coming. It's given so that you may be prepared so that you may seek the strength and wisdom that only He can provide. The strength and wisdom that He will give you and through which He will deliver you safely to His kingdom and everlasting life. Let us pray. Father, as we draw near to the close of this, of this book, of this book of Your Word, Father, we ask You for that wisdom. Father, we trust that you will give it to us. For you have, you have promised to take care of us. And in Christ, you do take care of us. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us to make us wise, to teach us how we ought to live and how we can endure to the end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.